So when I thought about um, what I wanted to teach today, particularly uh, this being the really the middle of Holy Week, tomorrow is Holy Thursday, it is the uh, the second day of the eight-day Passover celebration. So many of us have spent the last night or two nights at uh, Passover ritual meals. And I uh, tried to tell my family at both Monday and Tuesday night meals that uh, the most important line in that whole liturgy, I think, is uh, the liturgy is really the recounting of the exodus from Egypt, the recounting of the story of the exodus from Egypt, which is probably a mythical story. But it's a wonderful mythical story about the possibility of freedom from slavery. And uh, it's possible, especially if you teach it as a myth, to talk about uh, all of the ways in which uh, slavery exists, not only slavery in the, manif- in the outside world, in the way of people are oppressed by other people. Uh, I heard a statistic yesterday that there are more people enslaved now than any time in history. Um, but the way in which uh, an individual is enslaved by the habits of their own mind. And uh, been thinking a lot all week about how the freedom from inner slavery is a necessary component for the bringing about of the ending of outer slavery in the world. Because when the mind is free, uh, and can see clearly. This this is actually my, my, my deepest trust. The mind is free and can see clearly and recognize the pain that comes from the expression of greed, hatred, and delusion. It doesn't do it anymore. That the human heart is the safeguard when it's free to act against uh, oppressing or abusing. I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings, which is the first of the precepts that we take as uh, practitioners, really becomes automatic. I think if the mind is clear, it would become impossible to uh, willfully harm a human being. So I talked a lot last night and the night before about um, recognizing the ways in which in the world slavery still exists. And how necessary it is, at, at least in, from my way of thinking, to think about uh, the ways in which I keep my own mind trapped from seeing clearly or um, confused and getting in the way of my acting in a way that makes a difference. And sometimes there are things that unconfuse the mind right away. And uh, one of the things that unconfuses the mind is contemplative practice so that we particularly sat this morning, I was hopeful. I don't know, what did you make as, a, as, an, as an intention? Did you make an intention? May the, what did you intend? Um, my name is Margie. Yeah. And I, I mentioned before that I've been um, struggling with, with pain, chronic pain the last couple of years. And I was um, asking for a revelation about physical suffering and insight. And it was just all of a sudden, I could feel gratitude for all the parts of my body that don't hurt. I am grateful for my arms, my hands, and it just overwhelmed me that there was really very little that was painful. And then I just started doing meta, loving kindness to the painful parts. 
Oh, Marjorie, I'm so happy that, I mean, um, first of all, I'm happy immediately and personally for you that that you felt good in, in your body in that moment. And I'm also very happy for all of us for your very clear uh, presentation of how in a moment that the mind becomes expansive and does not narrow in on, when we become more than just our lower back, you know, that the mind becomes expansive and it says, okay, here's this big picture. Wow. In which is my lower back? The wow of the big picture provides the support for the lower back. It gives a little pickup of the heart. And really, I think a lot about what picks up the heart so that we can deal with our lower back or our parent who's dying or our children who are divorcing or our relationship that's failing or whatever else it is that's the pain of the moment in the larger story. I have this feeling, and it's very mechanistic feeling, though, mechanical feeling somehow, but the mind that takes up space. Of course, this is completely made up. The mind is not on, it's not a thing that has a shape. But I have this feeling that it has walls, and that if the walls are pushed out wide enough, then I have room to move around in my life. And if the walls close me in, I can't move around at all. So sometimes there are things that push the walls back, and you think, oh, so maybe light comes in a little bit, and I can move around a little bit. What else did you intend when you sat? Um, to be open to a revelation about aging, and um, I didn't have one, except that that experience of making space for defining aging in ways different from how I have done it. Linda, yes? Are you Linda? Anita. Anita, sorry, Anita. Um, I think that's a very big thing to make space to define aging <laughs> in another way. I think about it quite a lot, actually. <laughs> I, you know, teaching Dharma 30 years ago and talking about old age, sickness, and death was a whole different thing <laughs> than coming up on it. And, you know, all of a sudden, old age. <laughs> um, yeah. And how did David? Uh, I'm, at the first night Seder I went to, there were uh, two women. One was soon to be 96 and one soon to be 95. And sitting right next to them was a four-month-old. Um, to watch the gentleness and sweetness and openness of interaction um, amongst what well, for me was quite an age spread. Yeah. <laughs> it was very wonderful. And I probably will not get to be eight months old again in this lifetime. Yeah. And I have a feeling I will not get to be 96. But yeah. to be able to experience that, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I had the experience. I mean, it was very lovely. Because hardly ever do I ever get to say, 
ten times where I'm from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I kept saying, well, I'm from Sheboygan, Wisconsin. I'm from Wisconsin. Yeah. She was only too delighted to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's great. The, you know, the, the last person who told me a story like that told me about bringing her aged aunt in a nursing home spare ribs or something that she particularly liked to eat. And she was delighted. I opened the lunchbox. There it was. She was delighted. She ate some. She talked a little bit. And then she looked down. She was delighted again. You know, that, that, this, that, you know when you think about it, that it has a certain kind of a charm about it. You know, that, uh, you know and it's just... Um, You know, the sad side of that is the person who told me the story of taking their aged mother to their father's funeral and the mother not knowing who died and asking who died and saying, Dad died. And five minutes later, whose funeral is this? It's Dad's funeral. Both sides, you know. But you know, when you think about it, what those stories do for me, both sides, either end, is they... Um, they somehow erase whatever pettiness is in my mind. The stupidness falls out of my mind. You know, the, the grudge that I am keeping about so-and-so didn't talk right to me, or so-and-so didn't like what I said, or this one said this about that, or that about this, is so insignificant compared to the big story of people are living and dying, and other people love them. And uh, whoever is living and dying You know, in the context of this week, I remember several weeks ago, I was talking about seeing the movie about the passion and uh, thinking throughout it uh, at different times about uh, uh, what mother today is uh, hearing news about the, the death of their daughter or their son in Iraq. Um, you know, people die, and they die of illness, and they die of accident, and, you know, I don't, I don't know that it's fair to say that, uh, you know, that a death that's gratuitous, that, that's, that happens because of a, of a, of a gratuitous lie is worth and worse or better than um, a death that happens because of a highway accident, or whether a death that happens because of a highway accident because someone is drunk is worse than a highway accident because it's snowing and someone rides off an embankment. A loss is a loss. A loss is a loss, and a heartbreak is a heartbreak. And really what I wanted to talk about today is my sense that what's extraordinary about human beings, what we learn from the story of the, the passion, which we get to know about in in different ways in the next four days. Um, what we get in, say, in telling the story, and this is how I started, tell the story, it says in the liturgy, tell the story about the exodus from slavery as if it's happening to you now, not like it happened 3,000 years ago. That's the most important line in that liturgy because it's right in the beginning of the liturgy and you can start and barrel right past it. You say, okay, let's stop. How is this happening now in the world? And how is it happening now in your heart? 
where are the ways in which the, how are the where are the ways in which the world is oppressed and enslaved in which i can make a difference and where are the places in my heart that are oppressed and enslaved held hostage to some idea that enslaves it and how can i address that and then my sense of uh, of this practice is that it gets addressed it, by the practice of stillness, which we do, gets addressed by the practice of loving kindness, as Denise said, of really making the effort to treat one's own self with love and the world with love. It's an extraordinary practice. The, the, I think about this practice, but I actually think of it as all religious practice, as a lifelong practice of trying to love. I th- sometimes I think it's trying to love against all odds. I'm not sure whether it's against all odds, because that makes it sound like it can't happen. But um, maybe in spite of all challenge would be better than against all odds, because I think the odds are good that you can do it. I, I think it's in, in, in face of all challenge. And what I really wanted to add into the equation for today, which I think is an important component of what the Buddha taught, is a fact uh, is a condition called clear <coughs> comprehension of purpose. It's not a thing that we talk about a lot, but in um, in uh, scripture commentary about the mindfulness sermon on which this mindfulness practice is based. You know, when we come together and we sit quietly, I give one or another instruction every week. But the instruction is actually pay attention. Pay attention to your body, pay attention to the breath in your body, pay attention to the feeling tones that come up in each moment, pay attention to what's in your mind, pay attention to what's there, pay attention to the the groups of things that are there, pay attention to what you see about what's there, that when this thought comes, this body sensation happens, or this thought usually, this, this kind of feeling tone, this kind of thought or mood in the mind brings this sort of feeling in the body. And the insights that come just from paying attention, and re- which are really the, the which is really the heart of uh, the mindfulness sermon, the sermon that the Buddha taught that we base this mindfulness practice on. And seriously, the book of the best book of commentary on that is called "The Heart of Buddhist Meditation." And I think it's called, you know, I'm making this up. I don't know why Nyanapanaka called it the heart of Buddhist meditation. It may be heart in the sense of the core of what the Buddha taught. But I actually also think it's the heart of Buddhist meditation because what, um, what it leads right into is clear comprehension of purpose. And I read that clear comprehension of purpose as the ability to be able to then know what ought to be done in any circumstances, moment to moment, not always the momentous, world-shaking, life-shaping decision, but moment to moment, what's the wise thing to do? That a moment of mindfulness doesn't just end. A moment of mindfulness in which, by definition, there is no greed or hatred or delusion where the mind is not pulling, or pushing away, or falling asleep. That moment is a free moment in which there is clarity of vision and uh, a surfeit of energy, that there's enough energy in that moment 
to then do something. You see what needs to be done, and you can do it. And you know, I, I'm making this up, but I am going to link that right together with the Metta Sutta. Those being the Mindfulness Sermon and the Metta Sermon being the two principal teaching texts from the Theravada the Pali Canon on which we base what we teach here at Spirit Rock. I am going to make the link, although they are not in time chronologically together. The Buddha didn't teach them together. They come from different times. I'm going to link them together by saying that mindfulness leads to a clear comprehension of purpose. What should I do? Because the first line of the Metta Sutta is this is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. And I, 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 I know I've told you a lot of times that that's thrilling to me just as in self if I were going to do an exegesis of text of the Metta Sutta, which sometimes I like to do line by line. I love that line even before the whole rest of the Sutta because it's going to say what should be done, this and this and this and this and this, all of which will cause you to be able to wish in gladness and safety, may all beings live with peace. Or may all beings be happy, or may all beings live with ease, depending on which translation you read. But I love that first line all by itself, this is what should be done. Because, you know, it's such a confusing world. I love the idea that somebody knows this is what should be done. You know, in the newspapers every morning, they're arguing, this is what should be done. And here's David Brooks, he says, this is what should be done. Here's Bob Herbert, he says, no, we should do this. And here's Thomas Friedman, he says, we should do that. Somebody else says, no, we should do that. They can't agree. I love it that somebody comes along and says, this is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. So I, I, I want to tell you that there are three things. I, I said two of them. We could be still and meditate. We could... Um, Practice the lifelong practice of loving in spite of whatever happens, which is really the practice of metta. Uh, and we can actually, at least three, the third would be to behave in the way as if we had insight, to already manifest ourselves in the path of compassion, the path of love in the world, really the path of service. So the other night I went to a meeting in Berkeley uh, of um, it was a fundraiser for um, an organization called the Nonviolent Peace Force. They um, gave a they gave, there was an evening here about a year ago where David Hartsaw, who's the director of that, came and talked. Was anybody here that night? Jack and I hosted it about a year ago. He and David Harris spoke here one night. David Hartzell is a lifelong um, Quaker, uh, has a background in peace, and very early on in his adult life decided that that was his path to uh, manifest and bring to pass peaceful reconciliation in all places that there was conflict. So I, you know, in my lap, I won't read it all to you, but. It's literature um, supporting the theory and the practice of peace. Uh, the, uh, one of the quotes that they talked about the other evening, and that's on their brochure, is uh, from uh, Gandhi. An eye for an eye. Do you know the end of this? Uh, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. Um, Nonviolent Peace Force is a peace army composed of trained civilians from around the world. 
in partnership with local groups, peacefulish members apply research-based nonviolent strategies to protect human rights, deter violence, and help create space for local peacemakers to carry out their work. The Peace Force is the world's first large-scale international force composed of trained, unarmed civilians ready to serve in conflict area. It grows out of a broad international movement seeking alternatives to military intervention. It builds on pioneer work on nonviolent action in the 20th century. So uh, you will remember um, that the uh, independence for India depended on a very large movement led by Mahatma Gandhi. You remember the civil rights movement in this country and Martin Luther King. It was very touching that this meeting the other night happened on April 4th. And April 4th was the 36th, 38th, 36th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King. 36 years, can you imagine? Who here remembers where they were when they heard that? They can't not remember, you know, that um, it's one of those increases the scale of nonviolent tools available around the world, involves leadership and participation from all regions of the world, begins in a region only when invited by local groups, uses proven methods of nonviolent action for conflict resolution, and applies state-of-the-art technology to monitor and report on the conflict to a worldwide <coughs> audience. It was tremendously, was anybody else there with me? I'm, no, Edie was there. What do you want to say about it that evening? It was really inspiring to see a large vision of an alternative to violence in war as a, as a possible solution and to hold that in, in the largest manner. And people who are not frightened. By the way, the budget that people envision for this, if it became really funded, um, and I am happy to tell you how to send the money, but if it were to be really funded to do what they have as a vision for the next 10 years, the entire yearly budget for workers all over the world, uh, for training people, would be what is spent um, on war now in one hour. So it's 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 amazing. And people who are not frightened, which was they're not discouraged, which is wonderful. I mean they've been doing this forever and they're not discouraged and they do amazing things and they're not frightened. Uh one of the women who spoke, uh uh Dan Ellsberg spoke, David Hartsaw spoke and Angela Mason spoke. Angela Mason is uh, the regional director of an organization called World Vision. They go all over the place, and uh, uh, their, their uh, mandate is to help children in the world. She told some devastating statistics about the number of children who are abused in the most horrifying kinds of ways 
in the world, impossible to think about. And she had such spirit that there was something about the combination of hope that showed through that showed through her spirit that I think carries into the people who are listening a sense of faith that a difference that there could be a different world. There's something about a dynamic person just absolutely uh, vibrant in her presentation, telling, for instance, the story of going to Bosnia um, in the middle of the worst conflict. And having been invited there to address and take care of some particular group, but not being able to get in to where she needed to go. So I, I don't know if I can do this justice. Edie will tell if I'm doing this good. I couldn't do it because she's a bigger woman than I am and just a different kind of a voice. And also British, so I'd have to do that accent as well. <laughs> but uh, she couldn't get uh, over, a certain, over a certain road which was blocked. So she said, so, uh, <laughs> I called the British Embassy and I spoke to the uh, commandant in charge. And uh, uh, he put me on to the local ranking military officer and I said, I need to go across that road and you need to send either a helicopter or a lorry or a tank or whatever it is you'd like to send because I need to get to that place tomorrow. And she didn't get anywhere for a long time. And then she said, I remembered, I, she said, I do not give up. She said, so I, th I said to him, I remembered this long ago piece of information from my uh, uh, current events of my, what do you call, civics class in, uh, as I was growing up. So I said, now, hear me. I am a citizen of Her Majesty's government. <laughs> and I'm in distress. <laughs> you are required to rescue me. So she said there was a long pause, and then he, he said, uh, very well, madam. You need, to ha you, need, you need to have a flak jacket and uh, a helmet. And she said, I have a flak jacket <laughs> and a helmet. And so the end of the story, uh, uh, you, uh, you'll need to report at 0400 in the morning to leave. She said, fine, I'll be there. And so she did. And listening to her, I was prepared to go the next moment to Bosnia with her. <laughs> if, would you have not gone to Bosnia or any place in the world with that? If she would have said, Sylvia, let's, you know, let's go anywhere. Let's go to Sri Lanka tomorrow. Let's go to Bhutan and teach. You know, I would have gone. There's something about somebody else saying, look, we could do something to address suffering just for 10 people, 20 people, 5 people, 3 people, but they need it, and we have the skills to do it. Let's go do it. It'd go, wouldn't you? Inspiring. So that's what I thought about, that somehow the vision that inspires her is um, this needs to get done. And that it's really what her heart wants her to do. The um, World Visions is a faith-based organization. It's the largest apparently faith-based charitable organization. It's been going for 50 years. 
She said, by the way, that she would come and talk to you if you'd like to hear her. Would you like to yeah. be a shot in the arm? When the <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll do that. She said, uh, uh, oh, we talked about that, actually. She said, well, of course I'll do that. She said, I can't come now because I'm going to Rwanda the day after tomorrow. <laughs> but uh, to do a story that will be covered on Channel 5 News. And but in May, would you like that? I'd like that. Okay. Well, that was pretty clear. <laughs> yes, let's do that. But the, the thing that really, ins uh, that, that I carried away with me most of all is... Um, that it only requires somebody to demonstrate that an alternative is a possibility, you know, that we could, that, that it's possible under all circumstances to go forward, to make a difference, to act positively, and to not be angry, not be angry at anybody. I mean, I, I had no sense at any point that even in that dialogue with the British commandant, that she was angry with him. He's just doing his job. And she's doing hers. You know, I'm a, you know, just. I remember that was the last line. She said, such a, she was so funny. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the conversation, the common commandant, having given her the means of getting there, says, you are, you are a difficult man. And she said, aren't you glad you're not married to me? So you know what, while we have another half hour, I'm going to pass this around. If you feel like putting a check or some money in here for the Nonviolent Peace Force, make it out to the Nonviolent Peace Force or just put money in there and I will send the whole thing over. Uh, they have a matching uh, grant promise for uh, this month and there's a local donor who will match up to $30,000 in gifts. So. Uh, you know, everybody who was there the other night was very enthusiastically supportive. So if you want to be, that'd be great. They also have a website if people notice that on there. Because, you know, one of the ways to know what they're doing yeah. is, is to be able to, if you're on the internet. And I'm also inspired by the fact that people like Daniel Ellsberg and others in different peace movements, they're everywhere now. Yeah. I mean, that, this is the third event. We heard him two weeks ago with a panel of four people talking about conflict resolution and peace all around the world. And then he's going to be there the 25th with another group of people. Right. Something's happening that is inspiring. We are all talking. We are all talking to each other. and uh, Because there's only one thing to talk about at this point. The conversion of the heart to, uh, or the return of the heart to the condition of loving, which is its most comfortable condition, is I think the point of the whole spiritual practice and some sign that it's working, you know. I, I know that I, I'm, I'm um, I know that I've said a lot of times before, I'm interested when I talk to people about what is your practice? You know, people say, we didn't have the word spiritual practice before 30 or 40 years ago. People said, what's your religion? 
which actually didn't always mean what's your spiritual practice. It just often meant what club do you belong to or what lineage were you born into. And then spiritual had a funny name, a funny sense for a while because it's like, <coughs> dun, 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 dun. you know, it was like uh, Ouija boards and um, mysterious things. And then spiritual practice, uh, that's a new word, spiritual practice. It's not actually in religious lineages that took themselves seriously. Spiritual practice is not a new word. But it is a word that's now made its way into the mainstream. And I think of I'm getting simpler and simpler in how I think of my spiritual practice. I think it's the return of my heart to the condition of love from the condition, the condition of, for one reason or another, having fallen out of love in that moment with my life, with life in general, which happens all the time. When I think about the exodus from, uh, from Egypt, you might be interested in knowing that the, uh, the, name of, uh, the name for the country Egypt in Hebrew is Mitzrayim, and that same word means narrow place. So it's actually an, uh, it's an escape from a narrow place, a place where you get stuck. And so I think a lot, I get, I get, I go out from Mitzrayim 10 times a day, 20 times a day, however many times I get startled, annoyed, ruffled, resentful, distressed, cynical, whatever it is, the, the organizing uh, question is, can I in this moment, is my ability to love alive in this moment? There's a, a book called uh, Living Buddha, Living Christ. You may have seen it. Thich Nhat Hanh wrote it a few years ago. It's not new, uh, but it was a good book to read again this week. Uh, the foreword is written by uh, David Steindlerast, and he's, uh, he starts out by uh, remembering a, uh, a story about St. Francis of Assisi. Remember hearing that story once in Haiku. Uh, I said to the almond tree, speak to me of God. The almond tree blossomed. <laughs> it could have been speak to me of love. I'm not actually sure. I remember seeing that in somebody's wall. It would have been the same. It would have been the same. So he starts out with that haiku. And I think about us each blossoming in however way we particularly blossom. But the blossoming being a, um, a manifestation of our ability to love. We each of us do in the world differently. I, I, I loved Angela Mason the other night. I was ready to go anywhere with her. And then one of the things they said about her is she's gone here and there and among them to refugee camps where the Ebola virus is there. And I thought, well, you know what? Angela Mason is more courageous than I. Mm -hmm. Not sure I can do that. She can do more than I can. But that's okay. She can do it. So that there's a way in which I can exult in her ability to do that. I don't have to do that. I've been thinking since then about where can I go to do what. And I get all <laughs> excited and I told that to a few friends yesterday, and they said, well, you could go here and there and there in India, and I was all excited about it. And then I began to think later, I wonder if my doctor let me go, you know? <laughs> How about my neck, you know? Uh, you know, I don't know, you know, not, not, not myself wanting not to go, 
but I'm thinking about it, are people going to let me go? Have I passed my window of opportunity to do that sort of thing? So uh, David Steindl-Rast, talking about Thich Nhat Hanh as being an inspiration to him because you remember that Thich Nhat Hanh was in Vietnam during the time of the Vietnam conflict, actually physically buried monks who were brothers of his in his order, monks who were uh, killed because they were mistaken as being partisan one way or another. And when he came to this country, when I first heard him, what he taught about was the challenge of keeping his heart not vindictive. He says it's very hard to keep your heart not vindictive or vengeful when you're burying your brothers who have been killed. I think to myself, I don't know anything that's harder than that. I don't know anything that's harder than that. I think it's wired into us to, to be vengeful to be angry. Discussing God is not the best use of our energy, Thich Nhat Hanh writes. If we <laughs> I'm reading him. <laughs> this isn't me. That's the, this is David Steindl Rouse talking about Thich Nhat Hanh. Discussing God is not the best use of our energy. If we touch the Holy Spirit, Thich Nhat Hanh says, we touch God not as a concept, but as a living reality. Talking again about the poem by Stane Francis, the mystic Angela Silesius called out, start, oh, start out, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. I felt a bit like the almond tree confronted by St. Francis, start blooming, frozen Christian. The mystic Angela Silesius called out, springtime is at hand. When would you ever bloom if not here and now? I think that this is, this is that, that's the mandate that we all have. When will we come out of the tight places that, uh, that get in the way of our heart shining out in the way that it naturally can. I am so confirmed in my sense that we don't have to develop a new heart, that our heart, if our mind was clear, would respond with, uh, in one of three ways, actually. These are the three ways that the heart responds when it's clear. It responds, I think, in general, in friendship. I think we're friendly. Human beings are friendly. We smile at each other. If we look over, if you look over across at somebody, look over and you catch somebody's eye, you <coughs> smile usually. Um, or if you inhibit the smile, just because you know maybe people will think. But but we 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 smile at babies, you know, when they go by in the supermarket, you know, <laughs> don't we? And we talk to them too. Sometimes you inhibit yourself against talking to the parent, but if somebody goes by with a two-week-old baby. Everybody talks to it. The youngest person at our Passover Seders was four days old and then five days old. And someone talked to her all evening. I mean, people, she just got past the people, everybody talked to her. And that uh, there's something about human beings communicate with each other. They just, they just do. We're, I think we naturally connect with people, unless we're afraid of them. 
And especially when you meet something, well, that's quite neutral. Baby is not entirely neutral because it's so amazing. But, um, but I think in general we are we're we're connecting people. And the Buddha taught that the second way is when we meet something that's a painful, we respond with compassion. And we do. We feel bad. You know, again, you know, this is very homely. But in a supermarket, if you hear a baby crying somewhere. Don't you feel bad about it? It doesn't have to be right in your aisle or right your baby, but you worry about it. If you see someone taken ill somewhere, you feel bad about it. They're not your person. I wonder if I told you the story about the phone call that I got this uh, winter. I may have. Uh, My phone rang at 6 o'clock in the morning. And on a dark winter morning, it was pouring, raining outside. And my husband had left. Um, I live in northern Sonoma. He'd left uh, an hour before in order to get down to work on time, giving time for the storm. And he called me at 6, and I woke up. And um, he sounded troubled, and he said, um, have you listened to the news yet? I said, no. He said, uh, one of the rescue helicopters in... Uh, Sonoma, there are three rescue helicopters that take turns on three, uh, you know, every third night going out to pick up people who uh, need paramedic service, people in, in accidents on the road and people having babies in remote places or heart attacks or whatever, uh, who need to get air evacuated to some hospital. He said, did you hear the news? He said, one of the helicopters crashed in the storm up near Ukiah. And, um, the two nurses and the pilot were killed. And uh, there are, on those teams, three pilots and six nurses for the three teams. And one of the nurses is a friend of ours. And uh, my initial feeling is, oh, please, it shouldn't be Laura. Please let it not be Laura. And thinking about Laura's twin children and Laura's husband and we had just had dinner with them right before that. And I couldn't call Laura at 6 o'clock in the morning, and uh, they clearly weren't announcing the names of the persons on the radio. So I was waiting to hear further, or waiting for the day to happen so I could phone up and find out who it was. I was sitting, and I was hoping so much that it wasn't Laura. And then I, it suddenly occurred to me, that in any event, it's somebody's Laura. You know, it's not my Laura, it's somebody else's Laura, and probably somebody else's mother. And it was one of those moments where I felt momentarily a little bit startled by the fact that I had been so personally needy in that moment. And then I thought, no, it's because we are personally connected to people that we learn the pain of other people. That's the way we learn, actually, what it feels like to be bereaved. So at 8 o'clock, I called Laura, and she answered the phone. And um, it was somebody else's Laura, somebody else who had been recently married, somebody else who had a child, Two young children, actually, that they left behind. It's always somebody's Laura. Um, 
I actually think that one of the things that, that, that is part of the revelation of paying attention is that it's always somebody's Laura and that there's no end to the compassion that we could feel. The third way that the Buddha said about what happens to human beings when their mind is clear and balanced is that they meet joyful occasions with great appreciation and celebrate them. You know, you think, well, who wouldn't meet a great appreciation with joy and celebrate it? You know, we'd like to think that we always do. I, I, I have found in my life that I sometimes mess up joyful experiences of other people's. I don't mess them up out there for them. I mess it up in my mind by um, being a little envious. Like I wish, you know, it's all right for them. I'm happy for them. And I wish I would have that. That's the thing I don't have, you know. It happens a lot, you know. Something happens to somebody else's family. And it's very much better to be completely happy for them and not need any of it for you. Not say, oh, if only my child, my this, my that. It's very hard to do that. You know, that it's called mudita, the complete, uncorrupted, unalloyed pleasure in somebody else's pleasure. And it actually doesn't come from being a good person. We're all good people. That moment of, oh, I wish I had that too. I wish my child would have that fortune. Or I wish my sister wouldn't, you know, whatever it is. That's not because we're bad people. It's because we're in pain and we really wish that. When I, when I feel that about myself, I don't beat myself up. I actually try to notice what about me has become pained in that moment. What piece of personal um, wound is not healed in me so that I feel now grieved about this other person? It's a, it's a sign for me to think. It's not that I'm not a good person. It's that I'm still wounded in one or another way. If I were completely all right and sufficient unto myself, I wouldn't have any of that envy or jealousy. I would just be really happy. And if I were really with a balanced mind that was filled with wisdom, I would know that this person is just having a moment of happiness now. And that moments of happiness are as ephemeral as moments of joy. They come and they go and they come and they go. I kind of think we pass them around, you know, that they come in your house and then this person's house and the other person's house. And then in between, other things come to visit. You know, that everything comes to visit. And everything leaves, too. The joys leave and the woes leave. But, you know, at this moment, this person is having joy. It's a great thing to realize that they're having this. This is great. In life, there are joys as well as woes. That's a nice thing to be reminded of, especially if you're in the middle of a woe. And that their joy won't be this intense forever. So may they really enjoy it now, you know? That, 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 that wish for them to really enjoy it now actually comes from the wisdom of its passing nature. It's there now. May they be nourished by it so that in the future when it's not there, they're really sustained by it. Really, may your joy increase. Uh, it's a, and the, also the awareness of what a great freedom it is to be able to feel that way. It's a great 
It's a great liberation, using that word really purposely. You know, the Buddha said in the Second Noble Truth, it says the, the, uh, the cause of suffering is uh, a tanha, which is often uh, uh, translated as uh, desire, and it's not desire. I mean, we have lots of desires. They come and go, human beings. Animals have desires. They feel like eating, they feel like moving, they feel like all kinds of things, which are just part of the natural cycle of having a body and a mind. And desires, I'm pretty sure, are not the problem. They are the insatiable desires that do not go away when they can't be met. You know, if, if we didn't eat, that desire wouldn't go away. We, we'd really be craving something to eat. That's a normal thing. But if I have a desire for a relationship and it doesn't work, and I cannot rest easy unless I have a relationship, or I cannot rest easy, if there's the end to that sentence, I cannot be happy unless this and this and this happens, then that means that my mind is in some suffering state. And the third noble truth is that the end of suffering is possible. It doesn't mean that the end of bad things or disappointing things is guaranteed. I don't know that that, that can happen. I'm pretty sure that can happen in a life. That always something is, uh, always something is not quite, like if a magic wand person came along and said, anything you'd like to have fixed up today? Yeah, there's always a few things. Could you think of something for the magic wand person to fix up today? I could. But I think that, that, that the line, that, that craving could go away. Uh, my friends and I have been uh, working with uh, this answer when people say, how's, how's the family? How's your children and grandchildren? We say, uh, good enough, good enough. How's life? It's good enough. I mean, if we, we have a, um, what did we say we were going to have as a password for this group? I'm fine. But when you say to people, I'm fine, it doesn't mean everything is exactly the way you would have had it if you could have ordered it up. It means it's exactly the way it is, and I'm fine, which is different exactly the way it is. You said it before, Denise. Sometimes she'll be here, sometimes she's not here. That's fine. Good enough. Good enough. I think, actually, the, the, the point that I wanted to start with and end with for today is that I think that the heart is uh, very vulnerable to being startled. Um, and that the whole of life is really... a recovering from startle. And mostly we're startled into dismay. But even when we see something wonderful for somebody else, which should be a startle into, could sometimes be a startle into dismay if it's some wonderful thing that we don't have. That recuperating the heart seems to be an ongoing thing from the smallest things that happen to us that we would have wanted something else to the biggest things, which are really the bereavements the loss of our own vitality, the loss of our own lives, the loss of lives of people that we love. And I've been thinking about that, particularly in, in, this, in this week with the, with the uh, mandate to myself to think about what does it mean really to have forbearance under all kinds of loss 
I've been reading a very wonderful book called uh, Mary, the Flesh and Blood Biography of the Virgin Mother. It's a very, very interesting imagining of uh, the, what life was like for the mother of Jesus. You always look on the back of the book to see who liked it. <laughs> Sister Helen Prejean liked it. Harvey Cox liked it. Susanna Heschel liked it. Naomi Wolf liked it. If that's a name you don't recognize, Naomi Wolf's a great feminist. Um, Richard Horsley, who's Distinguished Professor of Liberal Arts and Study of Religion from UMass, liked it. So everybody liked it. <laughs> you know, it, actually, when, when you get in the book business, you know how to, you know, you get everybody to say something about it, and then you pick out one from this and one from this and one from this, so everybody can say, see, everybody liked it. One of t but uh, there was one particular line in here. It's an imagining of what was Mary like. And the imagining is that uh, the like, uh, the, she imagines her as a, uh, what does it say here? Doesn't. She imag imagines her as a uh, dark-skinned 13-year-old shepherd. And uh, for all kinds of anthropological reasons makes a case for that. Anyway, it's a, it's a very lovely and inspiring book. It's not a novel. It's an histor It's a rendering of what life was like in the Middle East, in that part of the Middle East, 2,000 years ago, and what might have been the circumstances of a birth of a child in that part of the country. Um, that grew up to be a great teacher and how that happened and uh, how it would have felt like to his mother at the time of his birth, at the time of, uh, at the time of his birth, in, the growing, in his growing up time, and at, at the time of his death. Uh, Leslie Hazelton, Leslie Hazelton, author of Jerusalem, Jerusalem. But the, really, the part that I wanted to read to you had to do with the part of um, of uh, assimilating great loss into life. Uh, you know, the uh, the line in the Metta Sutta that touches me all the time is, just as a mother would give her life to save her one and only child, just so should we towards all beings boundlessly open our hearts. Uh, in... Uh, in the Thich Nhat Hanh book, um, let me think who it was so I tell you the right people. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, great was my joy. Dan Berrigan, on the very first page of this book is a reference to Thich Nhat Hanh sharing the Eucharist with Dan Berrigan. On one occasion, this took place in a small room I occupied at Columbia University. As one of the sacred readings that evening, Thich Nhat Hanh recited the Heart Sutra, the most important Zen scripture in Vietnamese. It was April 4th, 1968. So it was the day. The ritual that we had celebrated, then we heard about the assassination. The ritual we had celebrated earlier that evening had once again been reenacted in history. Greater love have, no one has 
but to lay down one's life for one's friends, which is a gospel, which is the gospel of John. So just a line about how might have the women, Jesus' mother, Mary Magdalene, the women around him, how might they have uh, transformed this experience? Talking about um, what actually happened after Jesus' death and the that the tomb was empty, what could that possibly mean? That those women took comfort in the idea that there is a purpose in death, that the idea of death itself is part of life, part of the ongoing cycle of existence. But above all, they understood the power of grief to keep the dead alive. As any newly bereaved spouse or parent knows, the absence of the dead person is as potent as their presence, perhaps even more so. The physical person is gone, but the whole he or she left in the world is undeniably there, its gaping emptiness and almost physical presence. That's true, isn't it? When someone dies, you feel their absence all day long, all night long. When they're alive, you don't feel it all day and all night. As the survivors know, and survivors know, that as long as they themselves live, so too will the one who has died. They live on in the hearts and minds and dreams of those who mourn them. They live on in memory. Miriam, Mariam, which she construes to have been the Hebrew name of Mary, and the Magdalene, and the many other women knew that the essence of resurrection lay not in the flesh but in the spirit. The human spirit it was love that raised Jesus, declared the great 19th century historian of religion, Ernest Renan. And indeed it was. We mourn most deeply those who we most deeply love, whether Maryam's maternal love, the Magdalene's sensual love, or the loving faith of the other women. It was the for this force that would transform grief into joy, despair into hope, the end into the beginning. It was not in grief then that Miriam and the women around her would resurrect the spirit of her son, but in love. This is how they would lead their lives from now on. This was their wisdom. The line from the Dhammapada says, whoever understands impermanence ceases to be contentious. Everything doesn't last. There isn't a moment, I think, that we can let pass without making sure that we manifest love in some way to heal the pain in this troubled world. I get mad, but I have as a practice not to stay mad. I think that probably as long as I'll be alive, I'll get mad. You know, Something happens, he gets startled, he gets mad. And then I think it's a sign to start to fix it right then, 
to take care of myself, to take care of whatever got hurt in that moment. I, I feel myself not myself if I am not in a condition where my heart is available to befriend or to console or to appreciate. I really don't feel like I'm... I feel unwell. I've had a form of heart failure. But you don't have to call the paramedics. You have to... So I'm very touched by that. This is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm, wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and safety, may all beings be at ease, whatever their living nature, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, small, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those near and those far away, those born and yet to be. May all beings live at ease. Let none despise, deceive another or despise anyone for any reason. Just as a mother would give her life to support her one and only child, just so should we towards all beings boundlessly open our hearts. So with a boundless heart, should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, one should, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. I think it's the appropriate thing to do, uh, you know, just to end today. I don't want to just ring the bell. Why don't you turn to the person or persons next to you and wish them well, or give them a hug, or say something <laughs> sweet? Or... <laughs> well, on the on the weekend when we had our appreciation uh, afternoon for the people who have uh, joined that circle of monthly supporters of Spirit Rock. We decided what we were going to call our village. You know, we decided maybe we we're going to call it the Awakening Village. The people far and near who are supporting us on a monthly basis. Maybe we'll call ourselves the Village of Hugging Buddhists. <laughs> it would not be a new thing, you know. I mean, I mean, everybody hugs. 
everybody hugs, everybody sings, everybody dances. Everybody wants to go home and take care of their family. I wish you a very good week. May you get liberated in every possible way from all of the narrow places. May you be liberated once and for all. May you experience in your heart that boundless great love that is the promise of a human heart and which um, through the example of uh, great teachers who show us that as a possibility, may it inspire us to live up to that possibility in our own hearts, in our own families, in our own communities, and make it an example for the entire world. <laughs>